Welcome to the March 2020 edition of Beef Monthly. I'm Dr. Ron Lumenager, Beef Extension Specialist in the Department of Animal Science at Purdue University. In this edition, we have these stories and more. In headline news, we'll be talking a little bit about the COVID-19 or the coronavirus and the U.S. MCA trade agreement. In the Ask Dr. Ron segment, the question really is, how do I get a cow to claim a calf? In management tips, we're going to talk about those things that are important for March and April to consider. In upcoming programs and events, we'll be talking about some events that may or may not happen depending on the COVID virus. And now, a word from our good friends at Corteva, who have graciously underwritten this program. Your land is more than a business. It's a heritage that has been passed down from those who tended it before you, by those who shaped it, changed it, and cared for it. Your land has a legacy, one that you carry on, but also one you build on. At Corteva AgriScience, we are the stewards of a lasting legacy. We have a responsibility to Dow AgroSciences to maintain the relationships and trust they built, and to build upon those foundations. To help you care for your land, to provide innovations that help you protect the hard work and investment you've poured into it. To help you build a legacy that can be passed on for generations to come. Corteva AgriScience. Headline news, the coronavirus or COVID-19 has dominated the news for the past several weeks and it's affected everyone's lives in one way or another, but we will get through this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it, but want you to know that Purdue Extension is still up and running and will remain available to help you work through any extension type questions you might have. We've altered our way of doing business by canceling most face-to-face -face public gatherings to protect the safety of our clientele and our extension personnel. However, we remain available by phone, email, and text to answer questions and to receive program updates. While the situation remains fluid, Purdue campus and our extension offices remain open for business. If I can be of assistance for beef-related questions, don't hesitate to reach out. My email is askdrron at purdue.edu, and my cell phone number is 765-427-5972. The U.S.-Mexico-Canada Trade Agreement has been signed and approved by Canada's Parliament. The Canadian House of Commons approved the trade midday last Friday with the Canadian Senate following suit later the same day. The final step is royal assent, a signature by Canada's Governor General, Julie Payette, to become law, which is expected to happen soon. U.S. Trade Ambassador Robert Lighthizer issued a statement saying now that the USMCA has been approved by all three countries, a historic new chapter of North American trade has begun. He calls it a gold standard by which all future trade agreements will be judged. 
Lighthizer says the U.S., Mexico, and Canada are all working together closely on implementation in advance of the agreement's entry into force. The U.S. Trade Representative's Office also said the three countries now have three months to hammer out the regulations that govern the mechanics of the agreement. In this segment, we've got Gordon Lowry. Gordon is, works for um, kind of the state government, right? All right, right. and you're, uh, you you provide uh, the market updates. So you're director of, of market reporting for the state of Indiana, right. and this has only been happening for what the last two two and a half years. Here, yep. and prior to that, we we did we didn't, we didn't know what the markets were doing right. in the state, and so as producers, we were, you know trying to look at some national report or, you know, sales outside of the state. And, and so let's talk a little bit about the market reporting and where, you, where you're reporting from. Well, I go to uh, three auctions a week. I go to uh, Rockville, Vincent, and Logansport and uh, do those markets weekly. And then uh, on uh, feeder cast specials, go to Worthington and Springville. But that's just... Uh, Seasonal, seasonal, yeah, right. And so, so for for some of the audience that's that's watching this, you know, how do you decide how to report that? How are the market reports divided up? Well, we got we have uh, like slaughter cattle and feeder cattle, and then we run uh, fat cattle. We have to evaluate them when they come in. Uh, evaluate the cattle and then, uh, write down what. What we think they are, as far as quality grade, yield grade, and then I record the price, whatever they bring. And then on your feeder calves, you're probably doing that by your weights, okay? Right. Like, as they by come into the ring. By weights, frame score, and quality score on the color. Feeder. Yep. Color. color. Yes. And that. Right. And and so it gives our producers an opportunity to kind of, te- you know, Clear. understand what the market is and right. and make decisions as to maybe when they could sell their calves to best advantage. Right. And which market to take it to. Or, you know, if they got a choice, which market, you know, is doing well. So they can make that choice also. Gordon, you know, we talked about this market access and, and market reporting. As a producer, how do I get access to that information? Uh, you can go on the computer and go to uh, www.usda.in.org. And they'll come up to different markets in Indiana, and you can go scroll down through there and pick out which market you want to look at, and just click on it, and it comes up on the computer. And you do that following every sale. Every sale, I did it you know, every. Whether weekly sales or right. whatever, right? After every sale, it'll be on the it'll be on the computer online through the USDA. And Gordon, you've uh, you know. We could have probably started here, but you know, you've also been involved with the Indiana Beef Cattle Association for a right. long time. A long time, yes. Okay, you were on the board. Um, so you now, you and your son both, uh, you know, are pretty heavily involved in feeding some cattle now. Right. All right. right. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, we uh, put up a model slope building as, uh, in 15, 1915, and we've been feeding cattle for four years now. And, uh, we feed uh, Holsteins, and we've got some colored cattle in there now. Being a colored cattle, we're feeding, and uh, we've been uh, it'll hold about 299 head. 299 head. Yeah. And so. and 
So, you know, with your past experience with Indiana Beef Cattle Association and, and your current role as both now as a, as a producer, but also as, you know, a market reporter, what's the value of being an IBCA member? Well, you, you get you get all kinds of perks, I think. You know, you learn the legislator and, and, and all the stuff that the IBCA helps you with, you know, as far as being a member, you know. Yeah. They do so much for the producer, you know, yeah. as far as... Well, anything. You know, education, education, you know, marketing, advocacy, right? You know, uh, legislative issues that exactly. you know, as producers, we don't have the opportunity no. to or the time to sit in the state right. house or in you know in Washington D.C. You know, fighting a battle on some issue that's important to us. But that's right. But we've got representation there yes. as a member, uh, and that's that's very valuable, very valuable to have that those people there, legislators. Gordon, thank you so much for joining uh, us today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, hold on. Okay, let's go back on and tell us where we can get this information that he is collecting for us. Okay, okay then you're going to splice it in on the end? I'll splice it in in the middle. Okay. Okay. And uh, we'll just cut after the one paragraph, and before you go into all the other stuff, we'll okay. just drop, drop that it in there. there. Just, you know how how we can get all this data that you have available. Okay, good point. And we'll do that in. The next month or forty five days, the management tips include getting breeding soundness evaluations tests done on your herd bulls. Ideally, you would do this thirty to sixty days before the beginning of the breeding season, which would allow you time to be able to find a replacement bull if necessary or in, the case, in some cases, retesting a bull prior to the beginning of the breeding season. Another management concern would be body condition score of cows, heifers, and bulls. Now is a great time to be making nutritional adjustments as we start to think about ending up the calving season and beginning the breeding season. Another issue is monitoring calf health for scours and respiratory. You may need to work with your veterinarian to decide what's the most appropriate course of action if you start to see either one of these two uh, disease situations occurring. Another issue is overseeding pastures with the legumes, particularly clovers, but time is getting short. Grass is starting to green up and starting to grow. Another issue is grass tetany. As we start to think about turning cows out onto pasture, think about using high magnesium supplements to help reduce the incidence of grass tetany. Obviously, the older cows are more susceptible than the young cows. Now is also a great time to be pulling maintenance on facilities, gates, fences, water resources, and grazing cells as we start to think about going into the grazing season. Another issue is starting to think about getting your breeding supplies, semen, estrosynchronization products, heat patches, etc. Okay, now is a great time to be starting to think about getting those organized. Another issue is vaccinations. Sometimes we'd like to work with our herd health veterinarian, okay, to decide what that protocol needs to be. But in most cases, if you're going to vaccinate cows before the beginning of the breeding season, you need to do that at least 30 days prior to the beginning of the breeding season to minimize negative effects on reproduction. For those producers that have got fallborn calves, now's a great time to be thinking about preconditioning those calves uh, prior to sale. In terms of turnout to pasture, we do have a uh, 
Beef Tip, okay, it's at www.beeftips.info that Keith Johnson and I did, okay, about early season turnout. But in a nutshell, think about what the soil conditions are, okay, mud creates pugging, okay, as you go out to the, to the pastures and all those hoof tracks can, can detrimentally affect productivity of that pasture for the rest of the season. So be careful we don't pull out too early into our, in our pastures because of mud. The other part of it is plant height. Cows need to go out to pasture and grab a full bite, not just nibble. That means that if you're in a rapid rotation, grasses need to be at least four inches in height. And if you're going to be in a slow rotation or continuous graze, grasses probably need to be at least eight inches tall before you turn out. Another issue is to scout and manage pastures and hayfields. Okay, manage seed heads as they come on, okay, to, to maintain forage quality, to reduce pink eye. And last year we had ergot in some of our cool season grasses. That may become an issue again that we need to be aware of. And mowing off seed heads is one way to help protect our pastures. Also scout the fields for noxious and toxic weeds. For example, poison hemlock. It is in a rosette stage right now, okay, and could be controlled using herbicides. In this month's special feature, we have Dr. Frank Mitloner from the University of California, Davis, talking about how land is used on a global scale. Welcome to Cows and Climate. My name is Frank Mitlener and I'm a professor and air quality specialist in the Department of Animal Science at UC Davis. So I frequently get asked how much land is used for grazing livestock. And that's mainly because people are concerned that about 70%, that's 70, 70% of land, agricultural land, is used for livestock. So the assertion is out there, why not using it to grow plants directly? And I have a pretty strong opinion on that one. Now let me first give you, show you a little trick here. Imagine this sheet of paper here being the surface of the earth. This is everything. And now I fold it and I fold it twice until it's only a quarter its original size or equivalent to the size of a postcard. This total amount of area is all land available in the world. The rest is water and ice. All land, rest, water, and ice. Now this is my business card. And the equivalent size of my business card is all agricultural land in the world. So again, this is all land, and this is all agricultural land. Now I take my business card and I fold it into one piece that's two-thirds, and the other piece, one-third its original size. And what you see now is a larger piece, and that larger piece, two-thirds of my business card, represents the so-called marginal land, marginal agricultural land. And that means that land is really not suitable to grow crops. Why not? Because it either does not have soil quality that allows growing of crops, or there's not enough water. So two-thirds of all agricultural land, possibly 70%, is really used for livestock. But to be more precise, ruminant livestock, like cattle, sheep, goats, why ruminants? Because they can take non-human edible feedstuff, such as grasses and legumes, and convert it into animal source foods. 
Without ruminant animals, we could not make use of that amount of agricultural land. The remainder of my business card, the one-third, is all agricultural land that's considered arable. And it's called arable because here you can grow crops, whether it's for people or for animals, and that's the only land we have in the world that is suitable for that purpose. So think about that. This is all land, and this is all arable land. This is how limited we are. And by the way, the crops that grow on this arable land, of course, also have to be fertilized. Half of the fertilizer going on this land comes from animal manure, is so-called organic fertilizer. So if we were to forego animal agriculture altogether, then effectively it would mean that we would throw away the use of 70% of all agricultural land and we would have to replace all the organic fertilizer that goes on this land with chemical fertilizers, which are very carbon intensive in their production. So by making use of marginal lands, we contribute on the one hand to carbon sequestration, but we also upcycle non-human edible feeds into animal source foods that are very nutrient rich. This is precisely what needs to be done in order to feed a growing population. This month's Ask Dr. Ron question deals with how can I get a cow to claim a calf? Obviously there are several situations that could be causing this problem. The first one is maybe a cow won't claim her calf. Maybe the second one would be a cow loses her calf and we want to cross graft a calf onto that cow. Or maybe we've got an orphan or a twin calf that we want to cross graft. Or in some cases maybe we've got a cow with too little milk, okay, that that we might take her calf and move it on to another cow that, that might be more productive and maybe more a little bit younger. So what's the important factors to success? Well, it really boils down to physical bonding between the cow and the calf. Smell is an important driver for that cow to claim her calf. Licking, okay, or taste is a second component. And then, obviously, there are hormones that come into play right after a cow calves. For the calf that's rejected, it probably is hormone-related, and especially in first calf heifers. One of the things that we can do is we can restrain the cow. We may need to tie the leg, uh, one of the legs back on the cow so that she doesn't kick the calf during your assist to nursing. You may have to help the calf nurse. Okay, and sometimes you could use maybe a bale of straw or a bale of hay to help prop up the calf. You know, after you work with that calf for just a little while, that calf gets pretty heavy if, if the calf isn't cooperating. The act of nursing and milk letdown stimulates oxytocin, and oxytocin can trigger maternal behavior. To cross-graft the calf, it's going to take time and patience. It may take three times a day for multiple days to get this cow to claim her calf. Once the milk from the, cat, from the surrogate mother comes through, oftentimes you will have better success because, again, that becomes part of the smell factor. When you're grafting a calf, such as an orphan or a twin, or maybe an old cow's calf onto a younger cow that lost one, we could expect, based on the literature, 40 to 60% of the cows will bond with that surrogate calf without intervention. But the remaining 
40 to 60 percent probably requires intervention. A young calf is easier to cross calf than an older calf. The options again are to restrain the cow and help the calf nurse. A second option that people have used is to skin the dead calf. Okay, make sure that whenever you skin the calf that you also include the tail portion because that's going to be one of the places that a cow is going to recognize her calf by scent. You may need to sedate the cow to mellow her out a little bit, but be careful. Some sedatives will actually create cows that are a little bit hyper depending on how they respond to the sedative. If a cow loses her calf during assisted delivery, if possible, do not let her lick or smell her dead calf. Instead, if you have the placental fluids, rub the fluids onto the foster calf, including the tail area, and on the nose and mouth of the cow before you release her from the squeeze chute. If a cow or heifer is moved for assisted delivery, ideally she should go back to the area where she had labor. That's where the water bag would have broken. That's where the smells are at. If a cow has bonded with her calf before it dies, you may need to skin her calf, including again the tail, tie that onto the foster calf, typically around the front legs and around the back legs. Make sure that you include the tail. And depending on age of the foster calf, older calves may need to have their legs tied together so that they stay down on the ground. The cow needs to smell that calf and lick that calf before she will let it nurse. Penning cows next to, a, to the calf may work. When the cow shows interest, it may be safe to put them together. Tricks to get a cow to lick her calf. There are several commercial products. One of the products is Orphan No More, which is a powder that can be applied to the calf. Don't get real excessive on how much powder you put on. That powder smells like ammonia, and it also has some salt in it, and sometimes that will cause a cow to start to lick her calf. Other producers have used grain, okay, sprinkled over that wet calf, or molasses, okay, anything to get that cow to lick the calf to start the, the bonding process. Tricks to increase maternal behavior would include oxytocin. Oxytocin can be sprayed into the nostril, which stimulates the olfactory bulb and also stimulates then subsequently the sense of smell. Injection of oxytocin does not work on the smell factor. Injections, however, do aid in milk letdown and uterine contractions, which could reduce retained placentas. If you pull a calf, okay, a lot of times producers will use oxytocin to help reduce the, minute, the incidence of retained placenta. And, and in some cases, you might want to find another cow that has recently lost her calf if you've got a cow that doesn't want to cooperate. In this month's uh, producer focus, we've got Brian Shooter. Brian has been involved with the Indiana Beef Cattle for quite a long time, okay, as both being on the staff, okay. working with Who's Your Beef Congress. Brian, let's, let's talk a little bit about what you've done with IBCA and your operation. Okay. Well, I grew up in Madison County, uh, diversified crop and livestock farm. We, uh, my grandfather started our Red Pool, registered Red Pool herd in 1941. So we've been in the cow business for a little bit of time. 
um, grew up showing those and kind of have expanded into Simmentals and some Red Angus as well there on the home place. Um, went to Purdue um, in the Animal Science Department there. After I graduated there, was lucky enough to get a joint position between the Indiana Beef Cattle Association and Purdue working with the Five State Beef Initiative. Kind of got me immersed in the industry here in yeah. the state. Um, and it was on staff there at IBCA off and on for 12 years, um, and then was able to return back home to the farm a few years ago and um, try to expand our cow herd and do some stuff there at home. So, yeah. so, so t- tell me a little bit about your role. You, you're pretty heavily involved with Hoosier Beef Congress as well. So right. talk a little bit about that. Well, when I was on staff here at Indiana Beef Cattle Association, I got involved with Hoosier Beef Congress. Um, I grew up showing cattle, so that was kind of a natural fit. Enjoyed that. Um, and as, you know, more and more I got involved with the Hoosier Beef Congress, um, even after I left IBCA, um, Joe came to me and said, look, we've, you've been very integral in Hoosier Beef Congress. We would like to see if you would work with us, help help organize that event even yeah. afterwards. And so I've stayed on and kind of helped, helped organize that, that event for sure. Now, with all the involvement that you've had, both in the cattle industry, with Indiana Beef Cattle Association, you know, your education at Purdue, what's the, what, what's the value of being an Indiana Beef Cattle Association member? Well, to you and your operators. Okay. Um, you know, we're busy at home. We, especially this time of year, we've got cows cabin, get into planting season, harvest season. We don't have time to spend time at the state house. Um, go to D.C., talk about those issues when those issues come up. Um, you know, IBCA and those those connections that they have can spend time at the state house for us, spend time at DC. Um, that's you know, that's just one small thing that we think is important. Yeah. And you know, from my role as a cattle producer, you know, they're doing some things that I just don't have time to do, but those are important issues Absolutely. that they're looking at. And you know, they've been uh, both at the state and at the national level. Uh, you know, the whole issue of foreign trade, and I think we're making some real progress in those arenas. Yeah. Uh, always can do more, okay, but but they are the voice and the advocacy group for for our industry. Well, when I, when I was on staff, I had the opportunity a couple times to go to National Cattlemen's and go to D.C. with the Young Cattlemen's yeah. Conference and just to see the impact that NCBA and the Beef Cattle Association have when you walk in the door. I mean, they know who you are, and they listen, and that yeah. means a lot. You you were also one of the young cattlemen, okay? Right. That young cattlemen leadership program yep. that yep. NCBA has got. What was the value of that? Uh, that was amazing to spend that week with guys from all across the country. Um, actually, my, my roommate the first weekend we were out there was from Hawaii, and unfortunately he's moved back to the mainland now. Before I got a chance to go down and visit him, so I was going to have a free trip to free night stay in Hawaii when I went made it down there. But um, just those connections and then seeing. All the parts of the industry that, that the organizations touch, you know, from packers, you know, we get a back uh, behind the scenes tour of that and realize how good the connections are. Even the um, Board of Trade, I think. I mean, we spent time on the Board of yeah. Trade yeah. in Chicago, went to D.C., um, and it, it's amazing just to see how, how important um, those organizations are and how well received and connected they are when you get to those those places. Brian, thank you for joining us. Thank you. In upcoming programs and events, there are two scholarships that have deadlines. The Indiana Beef Cattle Association Scholarship has a deadline of March 31st. 
The Baylor Forage and Livestock Scholarship has a deadline of April 1. Both of these scholarships have information in the show notes below. The Beef Quality Assurance Training that was scheduled for Monday, March 23rd at the Southern Indiana Purdue Ag Center has been canceled. The Indiana Beef Evaluation Program Bull Test Sale had scheduled an open house for Thursday, April 9th. That has been canceled. However, producers can come view bulls at the test station if you're interested in buying a bull. You might want to call for an appointment to make sure that personnel are available. Dr. Nick Mitten is your contact and his information is in show notes below. The sale for the bull test station is scheduled for Thursday, April 16th, starting at 6 o'clock. Originally, it was scheduled for a Springville feeder auction. The live, in-person auction has been canceled. However, the sale will go on and DV auctions online sale. The Indiana Junior Beef Cattle Association jackpot shows and point shows at this point have been canceled up through April 11th. Please visit the website below this video for additional information about the remaining shows. The Team Beef Marathon scheduled for Carmel, Indiana has been postponed until June 14th. The Forage Field Days are still scheduled and a decision will be made next month, okay, whether they will be uh, ongoing or not. But right now, they're scheduled for Thursday and Friday, June 5, 6 in DePauw, Indiana, and Thursday, Friday, June 12, 13 in Rossville, Indiana. The Stewardship and Stockmanship Clinic is still scheduled at this point. It's scheduled for Friday, Saturday, September 11, 12 in Danville, Indiana. Again, please see show notes below this video for more details on all these programs. And please make sure that you check the websites or make the phone calls to organizations that are hosting proposed events to make sure that those programs are still ongoing or if they have been canceled. This presentation was a production of the Animal Science Department at Purdue University.